what it feels like. So if I cough or if I sound a little nasally, that's why. And I apologize for subjecting you to listen to me while I have a cold for about 30 minutes. But the first thing we want to talk about here is that unity under eldership brings peace. We see this in verses 12 through 13. He says, now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. And to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So before we can dig into understanding why unity under eldership brings peace, we have to ask a few questions. And honestly, this threw me for a loop this week. I was talking with Stephen about this earlier. I was like, I, this, I don't know what he's talking about here. And I did a lot of digging and I learned a lot about, uh, about just this passage in general. So we're going to walk through three things. One is, who is Paul talking about in verse 12? Who are these people that labor and lead and admonish. The second thing is, why do we regard, recognize and highly regard those people? Because remember, this isn't a suggestion. This is, this is a command. And the last thing is, how do we recognize and highly regard them? So the first thing we're going to look at is the who. So who is Paul referring to in verse 12? So the key, the linchpin in this phrase, the linchpin to understanding this, is those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. If you were here a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, Raiden mentioned that when he was in seminary, he took Greek classes, or maybe just one. I don't know how many he actually took. And when he did that, his professor told him at the end that you now understand enough Greek to be a heretic. I have not been to seminary, and I do not understand Greek, so I don't know what that makes me. But when I was doing some studying, and I was looking at commentaries and reading people who do know Greek more than enough to, be, uh, to not be heretics, they pointed out two really important things grammatically about how this was written. And I promise this ties in. Just bear with me. The first is that in the Greek, the structure of this sentence makes clear that the three participles are referring to one article, i.e. these three actions, those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and those who admonish you. Those are three actions taken by one group of people. They're not three individual actions referring to three individual people. It's one group of actions for one people. So we know that Paul is talking about one person or one group of persons when he's referring to this. That's important. The second thing that we know that we need to look at is the phrase, lead you in the Lord. My, my Bible has a footnote that says, care for you. Um, if, if you look and dig into this, another way to translate this word is to be over you, which makes this phrase, those who are over you in the Lord. So when you start digging through, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what this means, I'm trying to see if there's anywhere else in the Bible that this is used. Well, this phrase, to be over you in the Lord, is used seven other times in 1 Timothy and Titus. 1 Timothy and Titus are what's called pastoral epistles. So it's Paul writing to Timothy and Titus and helping them uh, labor as pastors and elders. So it makes sense that every time that he uses this in those books, he's talking about the work of a pastor. So... <coughs> I'm not going to try to deafen you guys, I'm sorry. The, additionally, if you were to look in 1 Corinthians 16, this is just a bonus, Paul tells the church to recognize three men who were elders at the church in Corinth. So we see, and which is a similar language used here in verse 16. So when we combine this, what we see in the sentence structure that was in the Greek and the usage of the word to be over, we can make a safe assumption here that Paul is referring to the elders of the Thessalonian church. You with me? Does that make sense? Cool. So the second question we have to ask is, okay, so we know he's talking about the elders. We, now we have to ask why. Why do we highly regard and recognize them? And he gives us the answer in verse 13. He says, it's because of their work. So what is the work? He also says that. It's to labor among you and to lead you in the Lord and admonish you. And the first thing that I want to say 
is that we honor them, we honor the elders because of the work that they do. Paul does not give a rip about titles or offices or status or anything like that. They are worthy of the work, they are worthy of, to be highly regarded because of the work that they are doing. It doesn't matter about titles. I, I work um, for U.S. Steel, I work in like corporate finance type stuff, I do like budgeting and all that. And um, trying to make sure I say this politely. There are people in our organization who have titles that don't deserve it. And if you are in the corporate world, you probably have some sort of idea of what I'm talking about. The same thing applies here. Title does not matter. It is the fruit of the leader that grants them their worth. Second thing is lead you in the Lord and admonish you. We've kind of talked about this a little bit already, but I want to say more about it. The first is that God provides a definite order for his church. Our God is not chaotic. Our God does things that we don't understand, but in no way, shape, or form is he chaotic. He is orderly, and he is loving, and he desires for his church to operate in a way that makes sense and provides a greater sense of clarity as to what the mission of God is. So I want to say first and foremost that Christ is the chief elder of the church. Christ is the great shepherd. He is over all those in the church, whether you're an elder or a member or a child. It doesn't matter. Christ is the one who is over all. It is, this is not the elders' church. This is not the leaders' church. This is not the members' church. This is Christ's church. In Colossians 1.18, Paul tells us that Christ is the head of the body. He is the one who is over it all. Additionally, any authority that the elders have for the church is for the purpose of building up the church. The elders have authority. Let's, let's be clear about that. But it's for the sake of building up the church. If you were to flip over to 1 Timothy 5.17, this is one of the passages that I referenced when trying to figure out who Paul was talking about here. And again, this is Paul writing to Timothy about the work of eldering or pastoring. I'll use those interchangeably. He says, The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So we see again here, to reaffirm our first point, he says those who are good leaders, not just any elder, but those who are good leaders are the ones who are worthy of double honor, especially those who preach and those who teach. Coming back to this, this idea of authority and, and order in the church, um, we, we see that the elders do have authority, and the authority that they give comes through the handling of the word. And the word is used for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. And part of that training is warning or admonishing the flock. Warning and admonishing, same, same thing. And when they do that, that helps guard the flock against the schemes of the devil and the duplicity of sin. Sin, we've said this so many times, sin will always, always, always overpromise and underdeliver. You will not find satisfaction for your life in sin. It, it just, it, it wants to destroy everything that you have. Everything that you have. So, in conclusion, the work being performed by elders is real physical labor, which points the church back to Christ through teaching and application of the word. Because of this work, the elders are to be very highly regarded. This is the word or the phrase that Paul uses. And I think that there's merit in digging into that phrase too. And I promise the rest of the sermon won't be like this. But in understanding this, this is, this is confusing. This is not, to me, this was very confusing as I was studying. So I want to try to help us understand in the language that it was written why Paul uses the words that he does so we get a better feel of it. The word that he uses in Greek is parasos. Say parasos. Parasos. We all learned a Greek word. We're all partial heretics now. Congratulations. The, 
meaning of this word when it's used and conjugated is one of four things, either beyond measure, exceedingly, extraordinarily, or my favorite is superabundantly. I didn't know that was a word, but that's a really fun word to use. So every time that this word is used in scripture, it's used in a highly emotional situation. And I don't think it's an accident that Paul uses this word, but I want to show you, and I think we'll have them up on the screen, the, the ways that this is used throughout scripture. So the first one we're going to look at is 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 10. Yeah, perfect. Um, so in 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 10, and I'm going to just go there in my Bible. So it's the same book that we're in. If, if, if you missed us for the first four chapters of this, um, Paul loves the Thessalonian church. They were a great encouragement to him, and they just honored the Lord in what they did, and that's why they were a great encouragement. But as he's praying for them, he says, How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you? As we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul was praying extremely hard for this church. That's where we see that word come in. In Ephesians 3.20, Paul is praying for spiritual power. He says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. We sing the song called Abundantly More. This is the root for that song. Jesus can do so much more than we think. That's why he uses that phrase in there. And if you're not getting the point, we're going to look at the Gospels, and I think the Gospels really make this clear. Mark 14, 31. Peter is insisting that he would never deny Jesus. And if you know anything about Peter, Peter's life was filled, by, or was honestly marked by responses and highly emotional situations. He, the, the scripture says, but he, Peter, kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Can you feel the emotion in that from Peter? And lastly, in Matthew 27, 23, where Pilate is asking the crowd which prisoner they want to release. There's Barabbas and there's Jesus. Barabbas, who just quite frankly is a thug, and Jesus, who is an innocent man who really didn't do anything wrong other than preach the gospel and fulfill the mission that his father gave him. They, they choose to release Barabbas and to crucify Christ. And Pilate, the one who's overseeing all this, he says, why? What has he done wrong? But the crowd kept shouting all the more, crucify him. So I think we can picture this scene, and I think we get the idea that every time this is used in Scripture, this word parasos, it's used in Scripture, it's used, and it has a heavy, heavy weight to it. It's not a, use that's, a word that's used lightly. This is the word that Paul uses to describe how highly we should regard those who labor as elders in the church. I, I, I just want to, again, I want to point out, like, we don't do a good job of this in English, and I want to say a lot of it is saturated by, like, social media. Like, I feel like social media is the easy scapegoat for some of these things. But, like, you get on Instagram, you get on YouTube, you get on Facebook, we've always got the best blank going on. Everything is to the extreme in all of those. And I want to say, like, that's just not how life is. And if we step back and we go back to, you know, 70 AD or whenever this was written, I'm not exactly sure, to a world pre um, extremes in the way that we see it today, this word carries significant weight. And this is the word that Paul uses to say how highly we should regard those who elder in the church. So you can ask the question, why? We get the idea that he says that, but we can ask the question, why? Well, he tells us it's because they labor among the church, they lead the church in the Lord, they admonish to seek or, and protect the ways of uh, the, the church against the ways of the enemy, excuse me. If you were to flip over to John, I'm not going to go there, but if you flip over to John 21, 15 through 17, Jesus is talking with Peter, and three times in a matter of one conversation, he tells them, tells Peter to feed and shepherd the flock. 
I want to say that the elders who do the work of shepherding the flock, of faithfully preaching and teaching the word of God, and warn the flock against the schemes of the devil are highly worthy of praise. Because they are fulfilling the commands of Christ Jesus and walking in his footsteps of laying down their lives for his people. This is what Christ did for all of us. Christ took up the cross just like we sang, and he died so that we could be reconciled to the Father and have relationship with him and be in paradise both now and forever. And eldership is a form of that. Eldership and elders are called to do the same. So we understand the who, it's the elders. We understand the why. But how do we do this? How do we go about doing this? And the answer, again, Paul didn't really leave us with any questions. The answer, again, comes in the end of verse 13. He says, be at peace among yourselves. And I'll be honest, as I was preparing this this week, earlier in the week, I, I was honestly just going to skip through this, <laughs> this verse, or this last section of the verse, because it didn't make any sense to me. I was like, this feels like a throwaway, just like a general exhortation to be at peace. But actually, as I started to dig through it and realized that I'm not reading this correctly, um, this, is, this is how we give recognition and and highly regard, regard those who are elders. And I want to say on the front end, being at peace or peacemaking is not the same as peacekeeping. Being a peacemaker is something that we're called to do. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who are the peacemakers. But peacekeeping is not the same. And I want to talk about this in the context of the church, that peacemakers strive to work through issues and engage in relational conflict. We engage in conflict so that we can ultimately have peace. Being a peacemaker, however, does not mean that, that we lay down hurt or we lay down things that are serious to the church. But what it does mean is that we lay down some of our preferences for the sake of, cre of creating unity. Again, God desires unity for his people. On the flip side, peacekeeping, which is something that I'm terrible at and it's a sin that I struggle with. If you have any Enneagram 9 in you, you understand what I'm talking about. Peacekeeping is a dishonest and cowardly act that ignores the situation at hand for the sake of making things seem like they're okay. It's something that I struggle with, so don't hear that as condemnation. But we're called to be peacemakers. We're called to address things as they arise and to not let them fester or rot for the sake of saving face or avoiding a hard conversation. I want to say additionally, this doesn't mean that we view the elders as God. We talked about this already. The elders are not the chief elders of the church. That is Christ. Christ is the one who does that. But it also doesn't mean, like I said, that we sweep hurt under the rug. Because it, that's not at all loving. When we hurt each other, we have to work things out. And we have to walk through them together. Because elsewhere in scripture, Paul uses the, the metaphor of the church being a family. And all of us have families. And families fight <laughs> you don't, I don't need to explain that or, or dig deep into that, but families also reconcile with each other, yes. and they're made whole, and they do this out of love. They work things out. Colossians 3, 12 through 14, Paul tells us to bear with one another and to forgive one another. Ephesians 4, running into 5, says, forgive as you have been forgiven by the Father, and in doing so, you are imitating Christ. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, forgiveness guards us from the schemes of Satan. We are to be peacemakers. We are to seek forgiveness and unity with each other all out of love. Therefore, this passage, though it is not explicitly, explicitly written, this must be a call to unity. For relationships within the church, especially for those with the elders and the members at large, I want to say that peace is to be sought. Hebrews 13, 17 says that the elders watch over the souls, watch over the souls of those in the church, and they will give an account. They will give an account for our souls. And we 
are to submit to the elders so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, not primarily for their benefit. It is not primarily for their benefit that we submit to the elders. But Paul says that it would be unprofitable for you, the members of the church, to not do that. Whenever the elders are in good standing and they're doing the work of the Lord, we are to submit, and that is the most profitable thing for the church. Again, God is an orderly God, and he calls us to be peacemakers and to operate in the manner that he has given us. I want to just be abundantly clear about this, that this isn't a call for the elders to get to do whatever they want in any church anywhere. This wasn't the case in First Thessalonians. It's not the case here. It's not the case at Heights. It's not the case at uh, Mike Bird's church or whatever else you want to throw in there. But this is a call for the church to operate in the orderly manner in which Christ directed it to be operated. And note that as the church submits to the elders' teaching and admonishing and leading, the elders in turn submit again to Jesus because he is the one who is over the church. Unity is the mark of a loving church. The best red hill is a red hill that is unified for the gospel. It's, it's not a church that brushes over everything and everything's just perfectly fine and dandy and we just ignore everything and everything's fine because we have these great lives and all of this, but it's a church that's been through some stuff together. And as I was reading through this this morning, um, because that's how I was re- preparing, I was reminded of one of the first times, if not the first time that I came to Red Hill. Uh, it was back when we were meeting at Peel, like right above Peel in the box. And I was a sophomore in college and I'm just going to leave it at that. I was a sophomore in college who was not a Christian or had just recently given my life to Jesus. And um, I came in that morning knowing that I had done something wrong. Sorry. And uh, one of the first people that I saw there was Mitch. And uh, Mitch, I think, is at this point my oldest friend at Red Hill. And I, I kid you not, I came in feeling, feeling like dirt. And Mitch just loved me. And he didn't look at me like I had four eyes or like I had purple hair or anything like that. But he just loved me and embraced me. And as I think about it now, I think that's one of the main reasons that I'm still here. So thank you. That's what a church is. We lay down grievances against each other for the sake of pursuing the gospel. I didn't get that emotional when I was thinking about this this morning, (laughs) but now I'm getting a little bit emotional thinking about it. So what I want to say, I want to ask three questions in in response to this. Members of Red Hill, are you highly regarding those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord? Elders of Red Hill, there's two of you here, so I'm going to call you out by name. Stephen and Josh, are you caring well for the flock? Are you prepared to give an account for the souls of those in your church? Are you prepared to stand before the great shepherd and to tell him how you tended for his flock? And for all of us, are we seeking peace amongst each other? Are we walking in unity, seeking reconciliation, and choosing to love one another? Because when the church unites herself under gospel eldership, there will be orderly peace, just as Christ intended. Our next two points will be shorter, I promise. But that one deserved a little bit more... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Expounding. So the second point, unity against brokenness brings reconciliation. We see this in verse 14. This, is, this part, this, this section is written to the church as a whole, elders included. It says, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. The first thing he says here, or the first thing I want to point out here before jumping into this, is that though the elders carry a specific burden, and we just spent a lot of time talking about what that is, 
They are not the only ones with authority or responsibility in the church. The entire church as a whole has responsibility to warn the idle, to comfort the discouraged, to help the weak, and to be patient with everyone. Warning the idle. Another way this is translated is uh, unruly or undisciplined. In the uh, Greco-Roman era at the time, there was a common issue with idleness or just a refusal to work. If you jump back to other parts in 1 Thessalonians, Paul makes such a point to say, we worked when we were among you. We, didn't, we weren't mooches. We worked. We provided our own way. And that was in direct contrast with the culture at the time. A life without discipline leads to an idle and careless lifestyle. I mentioned before, I work at uh, U.S. Steel down in Granite, and though I'm not actually out on the line doing, uh, sorry, doing like the work of actually making the steel. I do like the financial stuff of it. Um, Alex back here is more, attuned, more adapt to uh, <laughs> what actually goes on with the line itself. Um, but part of being there is, is you have to go through safety training every year. Every single employee has to go through safety training because if you know anything about the steel industry, you know it is a wildly dangerous job. People, even with the amount of precautions we take now, people die every single year in the steel industry here in America and over across the seas. I'm sure it's much greater. But here in America, it's a dangerous place to work, and you have to be on your guard at all time. I actually just went through my safety training this week, and good golly, it was boring for someone who just sits in an office all day. But there are so many different things that you have to be on guard against when you are out working at the mill. And if you're not, you're going to put yourself and you're going to put others in serious danger. We had an incident recently where uh, somebody was over in our steel shop and he was out, he was on, I believe, what's the observation deck. And again, you can correct me on this later. If anybody has questions, go talk to Alex about this. Um, but he was somewhere where he needed PPE, he needed personal protective equipment, he needed a hard hat and he needed sleeves. And he was out and he didn't have that on. He didn't have the helmet on and he just had a t-shirt on. And we had an issue with one of our oxygen lances. And I don't, again, I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone here talking about this, but the oxygen lance, when something goes wrong with that, it's a bad deal, right? It's a bad deal when you go when that happens. And there was an issue with it, and because he didn't have the protection on, he was caught off guard mentally, and he had to go sprinting like 40 yards away on a, on a ledge that f the drop-off was about 40 feet. So because he wasn't prepared, because he wasn't disciplined, he put himself in a situation where he could have gotten seriously hurt or died. Similarly, in our lives, we have to guard against idleness or unruly behavior. And the way that we do this is through disciplines. More specifically, we do this through spiritual disciplines. Can I tell you that Jesus understood this? Jesus understood this. Jesus regularly made time to be with the Father. He, he fasted and he Sabbathed. And those are just a few of the things that he did to maintain spiritual disciplines in his life. And I want to say that all of this was for the sake of keeping his heart and his mind centered on what mattered, which was obeying the will of the one who sent him. So brothers and sisters, if you're idle, if you're lacking in the spiritual disciplines, can I invite you to repent? Can I invite you to repent? Because if you have a lazy or a slothful spirit, you are not following in God's commands to honor him by working hard for him. So I would invite you to repent, to seek his face, and he is gracious and kind when we do that. He loves when his sheep come back into his fold. But I also want to caveat that by saying if you're battling like depression or sickness or anxiety or discouragement, that the Lord is not disappointed in you in this matter, and that is a separate issue than being idle. Or than being idle, sorry. Um, notes just gave out on me. Okay. Sorry, I gotta find myself again. 
Sorry. So depression, sickness, anxiety, or discouragement, those are separate issues than idleness. Because if we look here in, verses, in verse 14, whereas the idle are to be warned, the discouraged and the weak are to be comforted and helped, respectively. And I think that this mimics the way that Jesus taught about this. Jesus, Jesus didn't use these words pejoratively. Like when Jesus talks about those who are discouraged or those who are weak, this isn't a pejorative thing. There is no negative connotation with being discouraged or being weak. It's not ideal. We don't want to be there. But it's not looked down on as the way that we look down on it in culture today. Like if we, if we say someone's weak or someone's discouraged outside of like Red Hill or outside of Christian culture, that's a bad way to describe someone. And, that, and it's meant in a bad way. But when we look at how Christ deals with this, Christ rebuked plenty of things in his ministry. He rebuked hypocrisy, legalism, hardness of heart, and unbelief. But when we look at Luke 12, and I'm actually going to turn there. Um, I didn't have this bookmark, so give me a second. Jesus approaches this a little bit differently, and he does it more gently than straight up rebuking the disciples. Uh, Luke, where am I at? Luke 20, it starts, the passage starts in 22 and runs through 34. I'm not going to read all of it. Um, but he uses the, the analogy that if God feeds the birds and he clothes the grass, how much more does he care about us? And he says in verse 29, he says, Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the, gentle wor- for the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, but your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be provided for you. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourself that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. Um, In other versions or other recountings of this, or it might have actually just been earlier in the passage. Um, It's actually in the verse right before. He says, you of little faith. I want to point out that little faith is still faith. So don't be anxious, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. He knows what you need. I want to say this. Jesus was acquainted with anxiety. He understood what it was like to face immense pressure and obstacles in the human life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he literally sweating blood. He's preparing to die one of the most brutal deaths you could die at the time. Hebrews tells us that we don't have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize, but one who is able to sympathize in every way. So if you're discouraged... If you're anxious, if you're depressed, you're in a different camp than those who are idle. Be comforted. In church, if you know someone who is discouraged or weak, you have not only the authority, but also the responsibility to encourage and comfort them. The last thing he says here in this verse is that we're to be patient with everyone. So regardless of how we love someone in a specific situation, we're to do so patiently. Can I remind you that Christ has been abundantly patient with you? Uh, Show of hands, who was a Christian coming right out of the womb? Like, first day you were born? Okay, nobody? All right, that's what I thought. So Christ has been abundantly patient with you. For me, it took uh, 18, 19 years for me to fully understand what it meant to follow Jesus. As Christ has been patient with you, be patient with your brothers and sisters. It's really easy to see where somebody should be in life. It's really easy to look and say, well, Marcus should be here, and he should be able to do all these things, and I don't know why he keeps struggling with this, but that's not how Christ loves someone. It's really easy to see where somebody should be. It is hard to love somebody where they actually are, and that takes patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. 
If you're struggling with patience or you lack patience, could it be because you are not walking in step with the Spirit? That's an entirely different sermon, but if you want more on that, go to Galatians. Walking in step with the Spirit is what gives us both the awareness and the power to be unified against brokenness and to see reconciliation happen. When we fight idleness, we encourage our brothers and sisters who are discouraged. When we help the weak, when we do all these things with patience, what we're doing is partaking in the kingdom work of bringing heaven down to earth. Because we weren't designed to endure this life with the pains of sin and the effects of the fall. Go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, and you'll see what life was like before sin entered the world. Yes, there was a life before sin entered the world. And warning others against sin, we push back against brokenness, and we encourage one another to obey and seek the Lord. This work reconciles us to Eden, which is the call on our lives. And the last thing I want to say is that unity towards Christ brings life. This is what we see in verse 15. It says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Really, this, this third point, I just have to get real, uh, real Southern Baptist and make sure I have three points here. Um, this, this point is really a summary of what's talked about in the first two points. And it reminds us that in everything that we do, we're to be pursuing Christ and everything is supposed to be pointed back to Christ. I want to say that evil has no place in the body of Christ. Evil has no place in the body of Christ. Slander, wickedness, malice, drunkenness, sexual immorality, abusive behavior, manipulation, on and on. There is absolutely no place for this in God's church. And the only thing that these things will do will sow seeds of destruction. And you reap what you sow. The analogy I always think of is like, where my parents live, uh, there's a field behind it. And uh, one year they plant corn, and the other year they plant beans, right? And they go back and forth. Okay, thanks, Mom. I'm just making sure I got that right. And guess what? They don't go out there and plant beans and they come out four months later and there's like, there's corn out there. No, when you plant beans, you get beans. When you plant corn, you get corn. When you sow seeds of destruction, you're going to reap destruction. Get rid of evil in your life. And we do this by loving one another. You get rid of evil in your life by loving one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Again, we have a higher calling and it's to always pursue what is good for one another and for all. And love is patient and love is kind and love is far more than just a catchy verse that's taken out of context at weddings. If you want to go with me to 1 Corinthians 13, it's only 13 verses. We're going to read through it all. Because I think this really summarizes what, what we're trying to get at here. He says, Paul says, writing to the Corinthian church, about the church. I, I don't honestly remember, Brooke, if we had this verse read at our wedding. We very well might have. But I want to just be abundantly clear. The next time you hear this at a wedding, know that this was first written about the church. Paul wrote this, this passage about love, about how the church should love each other. And yes, we can apply it to marriages, but it is first primarily written to the church. He says, if I speak human in, in human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Because love is patient, it is kind, it does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, it does not keep a record of wrongs. I'm going to pause real quick. Jesus keeps no record of your wrongs. 
Every single wrong that you've been committed, if you are in Christ Jesus, has been thrown as far away as you can possibly imagine. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am already fully known. But these three, now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. We can be kind. We can have money. We can open up our homes for one another. But if we can even possess spiritual gifts, you can, be, you can have the gift of being apostolic or the gift of prophecy or the gift of evangelism or the gift of shepherding or the gift of teaching. But if we do not have love, we will not be unified because love covers a multitude of sins. And when we reject evil and we pursue Christ-like love for one another, we breathe life into each other's souls. We're like a breath of fresh air, We're like a cool drink to a weary traveler, We're like a good night's rest to an exhausted parent. And it's like we're taking the weight off the chest of an anxious, of an anxious soul, that elephant that sits on your chest when you're anxious. Anxious, if I could say that word. It's like we, when, we, when we love one another with Christ-like love, we take that weight off. That is what love does for Christ's church. God desires unity for his people. A unified church is a church that is able to be sensitive to the leading of the spirit and can embrace all that God has for them. I, I don't know what God has in store for us. As, as Red Hill. I have no idea. I'm not God. I don't have like some special bat phone where God's like, hey, I'm going to do this in like two days. Kind of cool if I did. Also kind of terrifying. What I do know is that when we are unified as a church, when we seek to love one another, when we lay aside petty grievances, we put ourselves in a position to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, and we're able to embrace all that God has for us. But I want to also say that we can only love because Christ has first loved us. That is the only definition of love is what God is and what he did for us on the cross. We can, only, we can be unified under gospel eldership if and only if we have surrendered our life to Christ and committed ourselves to a local church. We can be unified against brokenness if and only if the regenerative work of the Spirit is happening in us. And we can only be unified in Christ if first we have surrendered our life to him. So I want to just make, the, just make it clear, have you done that today? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you admitted that your life is broken and that you need a Savior who will restore everything in your life? If you have done that, if you are a Christian, if you have put your faith in Jesus, is the Spirit leading you to pursue unity in one of the ways we mentioned above? Do you need to pursue unity towards the elders? Do you need to pursue unity towards your brothers and sisters in fighting against brokenness or just towards Christ in general? If you have done that, if you have surrendered your life and you are in right standing with the Lord, I would invite you to take the Lord's Supper. We have the Lord's Supper back here on the table if you haven't gotten one. Um, I want to just, again, make it abundantly clear. The Lord's Supper is for Christians and for Christians only. Go to 1 Corinthians. Shoot, I don't remember. Somewhere at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives a very... Um, words escaping me. This is a very stern warning against taking the Lord's Supper in a, in a heart space that is not right with the Lord, and part of that includes being a Christian. 
So if you are in a right standing with the Lord, I would invite you to take the Lord's Supper. If you have to do something to be in right standing with the Lord, if the Spirit is nagging at you, to use an old analogy from Raiden, the Spirit wants every, every aspect of your life and we can try to push all of our sins and all of our things into one corner, but he still wants the corner, and he's going to say, that corner is mine, and I want it. If that's happening in your life, you've got to do something about it. It's not going to go away. Trust me, I've tried. It just doesn't work that way. He loves us too much. So if you have surrendered your life and you are in right standing with the Lord, I would invite you to take the Lord's Supper, because this is a remembrance of what God has done in our lives. It's a remembrance of what he did on the cross for us, and that we are now made right with him because of that work. I want to also invite you to give. Giving is a simple and tangible way that we remind ourselves that we are not God. That the money that we labor and toil for is not our own, but it is all God's, and God's only asked for 10% back. Disclaimer, if you believe that the tithe is no longer in place, that's fine. But in some way, shape, or form, you need to be giving if you call yourself a Christian. The mission requires it. We can't pay rent, we can't pay, <laughs> we can't pay rain, and we can't buy Bibles for people if we don't have money. God will always make a way, but in, a, in the most human way possible, we need financial support. And it's a really easy way to remind your heart that your money is not your own. Um, we have an offering box in the back. You can text to give, uh, I think like 84321. Uh, text give to 84321. Or you can give online through the Church Center app. That's what my wife and I do every month. And the last thing we're going to do is sing. Eternity consists of saints standing around the throne singing praises to the Lord Almighty. uh, Bailey, I hope I'm not stealing any of your thunder, but we're going to sing Christ Be Magnified coming out of this, right? Okay. Okay, good. Um, The bridge of that song, as we prepare, as you take communion, as we prepare our hearts, um, it says, I won't bow to idols, stand strong and I'll worship you. I had it this morning, but I forgot it. I won't bow to idols. I'll stand strong and worship you. Um, if it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there too. Because death is just, see, you guys know it more than I do. Because death is just a doorway into resurrection life. And if I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when you rise. And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints, my heart will still be singing and my soul will be the same. And if the cross brings transformation, I'll be crucified with you. I forgot about that part. Those words are true. May that be the desire of our heart, church. Um, be unified today. Seek unity and seek love. When you're ready, you take the Lord's Supper and band. You can come back up here.